You're listening to The Peak Podcast with me, Christina Roman. We're having real, intimate conversations about the interconnectedness of life. Join us as we discuss big topics like intuition, personal mastery, and emotional wellness and why they matter for you. Today, we have a return guest, James Lenhoff. You all loved the first episode that I did with him so much. He is straightforward, no nonsense, and he's really fun when he talks about money and finances, so I invited him back here again. I throw a ton of questions his way, so I asked him the questions that you guys have. What to do when your partner's in debt, how to take ownership of your money once and for all, how to handle a raise, if you should have a fuck-off fund, if you don't know what that is, I explained it in the episode, and what he spends money on with his family in order to improve their lives. And then he also gives you a big hint about when the best time to get into the stock market is. So it's a bit of a trick. But anyway, I hope you enjoy that piece as well. Enjoy listening. If you have any feedback on the episode, you know where to find me. Hello at peakcoaching.co. Hope you enjoy it. Take care. James Lenhoff, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back. You're back by popular demand. How does that feel? <laughs> that feels great. I, you know, I uh, I always like when people actually ask me to come back. It means that there was at least something valuable that I said. <laughs> Your podcast has been referenced so many times in my coaching community and in my friend group as well. So, so many people have just said that they loved your energy. They love the way that you talk about money. Mm. And I was soliciting questions actually again this morning. I asked someone, I was like, do you have any questions for James? And they said, I don't know. I just love him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's very encouraging. I'm glad to hear that. That's great. Yes. So here we are again. I I have some directions I for sure want to go with you. Mm -hmm. But what is on your mind today about money? Well, um, I think um, actually right now what's on my mind today about money is uh, this awareness of the holiday season coming on us Mm -hmm. and everyone tends to um, kind of scramble and rush to fight to create enough resources to then binge at the end of the year and buy all the things that are on the list of uh, their kids' Christmas list or or their relatives, whatever the case may be. And actually just literally before we got on, I recorded my podcast and was mm-hmm. talking about this idea of changing the question that we have around Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, you know, you sit on Santa's lap or you talk to whoever and they say, what do you want for Christmas? Right. That's mm-hmm. the standard question. What do you want for Christmas? And I've started asking my family a different question. I've been asking, what do you want from Christmas? Ooh. And it has rocked us. It's changed everything because the conversation switches to, the experiences that we want and the memories that we want and the things that we want Christmas to really be about. And it completely changes what comes to mind just with that simple change of the word for to from. And then it changes how we allocate resources and how we allocate time and all the things. So as we get into the holidays, that's the thing that's kind of on my mind right now. Thank you so much. We can just turn off the podcast right now. You've already given us value. Everyone go home. (laughs) Um, No, I think that's an excellent segue into one of the questions I had for you, which was if somebody is, let's say, starting out with their money journey, obviously everyone's been dealing with money since a very young age, but if Mm -hmm. someone's taking the first steps to proactively manage their money, what is an empowering question that you recommend that somebody asks themselves every day? 
Ooh, wow. Uh, an empowering question that they ask every day. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I, is a really good question is what is the purpose I'm giving my money? You know, a lot of times we don't connect the resources that we are accumulating to why we're accumulating them. And if we don't have that purpose or that, that compelling reason then it either becomes really hard to save because we don't really have a compelling vision of what we're saving for, or we just end up accumulating a pile of resources that don't have a purpose and we don't even know why we have them. So that's a really important thing to make sure that people keep in mind for sure. I love that you mentioned that because I was just working with a client on a savings goal and she Mm -hmm. had an amount in mind, but she didn't have a purpose in mind. And she actually made that point that it was really hard for her to save because it was just this little amorphous blob of money (laughs) or big, big blob, I guess. And so we worked on, well, what would you want to do with that money? And then the next part of the conversation was super interesting as well. So she said, I want to buy this thing so that I feel like I am protecting myself in my marriage. Hmm. And I caught this as a coach and she ended up catching it a minute later, but we had a really interesting conversation about that thought caused her sadness because Hmm. she felt like she was protecting herself and not in union with her husband. Yeah. Like she was kind of saving things on the side so that she could bolt if need be, or she could um, feel like she was contributing equally. But when she changed the thought to, this is my contribution, the feeling completely changed. Hmm. And the action was still the same, which was to save money every month for this big goal. But just her driving thought and her, the feeling that that created were completely different. Well, and that's, I think it's a great example of the, how the thoughts that we have really do change the motivations in that, that emotional motivation for the actions that we take. I mean, when, when I hear most of the gurus that are out there, you know, a, a Dave Ramsey or a Suze Orman or, you know, they, they speak in rules. Mm. You have to save this much. You have to do this. You have to do this. And everyone does it because that's the rule. Mm-hmm. But there's no compelling vision behind it. There's no, like, you know, projection into the future of this is what my life is going to be like. And these are the things we're going to get to do. And this is how we're going to experience our, our family together in the future or whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. It's just simply, well, Dave Ramsey told me I have to. And so I do it because I don't want him to be mad at me. Mm-hmm. Right. We're like children and they're treating us like children. And so that sense of kind of you know, almost obedient behavior simply because some really, you know, authoritative person said we have to do it. When, when I work with a client and we can, we can create a really exciting and really compelling vision for their future, I don't have to make them do anything. Mm -hmm. They do it because they're so excited about what it's going to create, but the money that they're saving is then aimed at that purpose. And it's really fun to move towards that purpose rather than just kind of doing it because that's what I'm, I've been told I have to do. And I don't even really know where it's going. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting movement into the subject of wanting from a place of abundance and not from a place of scarcity. Now, note with the word abundance, I used to joke with my business partner, half joke, 
that I, I hated the word abundance. I was like, please do not ever use it on our website that we ran together. I hated it so much because <laughs> it feels like such a frou-frou, airy-fairy, woo-woo word. Yeah. I'm on board with it now. <laughs> good. Now I say abundance all the time. That's good. <laughs> but what is that difference in a client who wants something from a place of abundance versus a client who wants something from a place of scarcity? Well, I think the biggest difference is that when you want something from abundance, it's not uh, because you're expecting that thing to make you happy or make mm -hmm. you feel better, right? The, the wanting from scarcity is a sense of I'm miserable, I'm struggling, and I want this because it will fix my problems. Right. And that is never true. And so when you're in a place of abundance and you can want things still, it's because, oh, I, I would actually enjoy that. It's not going to make me happy. It's not going to, you know, fix my problems, but it would be an experience that I would really thoroughly delight in, right? Mm -hmm. And so the wanting is, is healthy, it's exciting, it's energetic rather than desperate. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key difference. Yeah, I like that distinction a lot. I want to ask some questions that have come in from listeners. Sure. So I mentioned this before we started recording. Some have come in directly as is from listeners, and some are questions that I've put together for you mm -hmm. based on my conversations with different people. So that's just my full disclosure. Sure. And then I want to ask you some questions about your financial life. I'm in. Let's do it. Nothing too personal, but maybe. <laughs> well, we can get personal. I'm an open okay. book. Yeah, that's awesome. fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what... Would you tell a client who comes to you whose partner is in debt? Whose partner as in life partner or business partner? Oh, good question. Life partner. Yeah. Life partner. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I think is very important when we join together in relationships that are, you know, lifetime relationships, whether that's spouses or whatever, is that we need to look at resources as ours, mm -hmm. not yours and mine. Uh, and that also means debt. So if someone is coming and you're going to form a relationship and there is debt being brought into the relationship, one of the things that can be most deadly to the relationship is if you continually blame that person, that debt is your problem. Mm -hmm. And all the rest of this stuff is mine. And that can really create a lot of shame and guilt thoughts that they're having about themselves, that they're worthless or they're stupid or they're whatever. And then they, they basically many times attribute that to you. You make me feel stupid. You make me feel that's not true, but that's what's happening is that that thought loop gets in the way. And when we come together as one, that means that we are sharing in both success and failure as, as a unit. And so whenever I interact with a couple and they say, well, you know, that, you know, my, my husband brought this into the relationship, but that's his problem. He's fixing that. I pay half the mortgage. He pays half the mortgage. You know, I pay half the cable bill and he pays the, you know, the, the gas and electric and whatever. When they split it like roommates, mm -hmm. I know pretty much immediately uh, this relationship is not going to work very well because you're just, you're not actually really committed you're just staying in the safe place of you know we'll stay separate and we won't actually share pain mm -hmm. and i think one of the most beautiful things you can do as a couple is share pain is is work through hard things and make them ours rather than yours and mine so i'm gonna get super in the weeds here yeah 
if some if a person has a partner who had brought a lot of debt into the relationship and mm-hmm. they are a person who opposes debt, right? Doesn't think that mm-hmm. debt is a good thing. Sure. They have a lot of judgments. And I guess what what are some different ways that that partner could think about their partner's debt that mm-hmm. might help them? Well, you know, I think one of the first things is to let go of judgments around debt. Mm-hmm. You know, this this whole idea that all debt everywhere is evil and terrible and bad. Um, I just think that's actually not serving anyone uh, because there are situations where debt actually does make sense. There are situations where debt was, in some cases, the only option. I've seen people, for example, that have a medical debt, you know, and you go, well, yeah, you, you could have just died mm-hmm. or you could have gotten that treatment that you didn't have the money for. And now that's being financed. You know, I mean, I'm not going to say that debt is evil just by default. I just I don't think that's a, a very helpful thought. Yeah. So the first thing is letting go of that. The second part in my mind then would be to uh, ensure that you actually have a shared vision together for how we want to move out of debt. It's one thing if that person comes in and they say, yeah, I brought $25,000 worth of credit card debt. It's no big deal. And I don't care. And now you're going to help me pay it off. That's not healthy Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. Right. There does have to be some sense of awareness that this is, this is actually hurt. If it is hurting us, Mm -hmm. right. The cost of carrying and paying off this debt is actually getting in the way. We need to actually join forces and have a unified kind of prioritized list of how we're going to get out of this stuff. And if the other partner is kind of nonchalant and flippant about it, then that's work that you absolutely need to do. But if they're in, if they're on board, if they're engaged and yeah, I agree, we need to get this done, then they're a teammate and that's healthy. So I don't want people, I I always coach people when they're in that kind of entry into relationship, if there's that debt that's coming in, don't immediately make that be something that is a division and a separation and you make a judgment about their irresponsibility or their lack of ability to handle their money or whatever, because a lot of times that carries forward even after the debt is gone. Mm -hmm. You you just can't trust the person. You don't believe the person is responsible. Those judgments don't go away when the debt is paid off. And so Mm -hmm. we really have to make sure we protect our thoughts or for, for that other person as we walk into it or else it just becomes kind of cancerous for the rest of the relationship. Yeah. And I think another thing that I notice is people will say, well, I didn't know that my partner was in so much debt. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be blunt as a coach, I would say, well, you didn't ask. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If if you didn't know, that's your fault. If you're walking into a lifelong relationship and you don't know basic details about your partner, uh, you're you're being irresponsible Mm -hmm. at that point. Right. I mean, I'm making a judgment, but yeah. Well, I think you can take that information. You can say, I should have known. I should have asked. And you can do whatever you want with that, right? You can judge yourself and make the situation worse. Or you can step back and look at that with compassion and say, oh, next time, hopefully there's no next marriage, but next time I get into a financial situation, I'll ask. And in the meantime, what? how am I going to make peace, take ownership, and move forward? That's right. Okay. Here is a conversation I have with one friend all the time. I'm so curious your opinion. Okay. Have you heard of a fuck off fund? No. Okay. A fuck off fund is this idea that 
usually women should be squirreling away money on the side in case something goes wrong in their marriage so that they can get out at any point with financial resources. Hmm. Are you pro or con? Pro for am, or against? Fuck off. I, I already know. 100% against. 100%. Why? Because it is already at the beginning of the relationship uh, sowing the seeds of distrust and preparing you to escape whenever it gets hard. Agreed. And I think that it is deeply damaging to the future of the relationship. If e Even the fact that it's there mm -hmm. is something that will remind you on a regular basis that you don't have to stay. Mm -hmm. And... That's a, I don't I don't think that's a healthy thought that serves lifelong relationships. I think, you know, thoughts that are rooted in we're in this together. The you know I committed to the hard as well as the beautiful. I'm connected to this human for the rest of my life. If if those are things you believe in walking in, but you have this other thing that actually is directly going against all of those beliefs. Uh, it's really easy to drop those beliefs when, when you have difficult circumstances or circumstances that make you feel negative emotion. You go, I don't want to do this anymore. I can just leave. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a terrible idea. I completely <laughs> agree. I, compl I always say this. I say it is lying by omission. If you are, yeah. if you have part of your money that's going into a secret fund that is lying by omission that's evasive and that will crumble your intimacy and what i Absolutely. think happens is you then you're not participating fully in the marriage i say this as a single person just for the record sure but right. you're not participating in the marriage and then you are going to create a result that is going to necessitate the need of a fuck off fund because you went into it with that perspective Totally. Yeah. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. You know, and I think the other thing is that uh, it it's continually reinforces this idea that I have mine mm -hmm. and then we have ours and then you have yours, whatever that is, right? There's this division and, and this mental framework that operates as this is always, there's always going to be a piece of me that you'll never have. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that sets up a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, vulnerability and risk and the potential for hurt is by definition, like the core of healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to kind of lean in and say, it's, this is all of it. This is all of me. This is all of my resources. This is all of my effort. And you get to have all of it, even if it means that you could hurt me. And, and again, hurt me is a traditional language, right? I mean, no, nobody hurts us. We create our own emotion inside our own brains. But we definitely have to be willing to invest everything in knowing that there is going to be circumstances that create thoughts that are going to be painful for us. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's part of life. But if we hedge... We'll never get there because there's so much beauty when you're all in. Mm. That's I love that experience. you. Yeah. I love that you use the word hedge because I had a client experience where she had an epiphany that she hedges so often professionally, like her job requires hedging and not committing. Mm. 
and kind of yeah. circling around things that she realized she was bringing that perspective into her personal life and it was really affecting her ability to commit to herself. Yeah. And so just that awareness was super helpful for her that she can't be hedging in her personal life. Yeah. I mean, any form of hedging is really uh, effectively a way to buffer against negative emotion, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's an attempt to try to not have to feel things that are hard, things mm -hmm. that are negative. And uh, I think feeling hard things is actually beautiful. It's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful in a lot of ways and, and it, it grows us, right? I mean, the idea that discomfort is the currency of growth. If you hedge, you don't get to grow. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So this might seem like an obvious answer given everything that you just said, but do you think that there's any time when a prenup is a good thing? Um I I have certainly had clients where we where they have done a prenup and I, you know, from a values judgment, I try to stay neutral on those things. Um I I do think that a prenup is effectively that same level of hedging. It's mm -hmm. the same way to say, Hey, this was mine before we got married. So that gets to stay mine or because I have all these resources. Now there is some value in the concept of, uh, if, if somebody has a ridiculous amount of wealth and they have a, you know, a history of divorce, and they feel like, you know, they just don't do well with lifelong commitments. Mm -hmm. um, they want to say, hey, what I brought to the table day one, you didn't have, you weren't part of. I will share in, in, in our resources that we grow together. You can have those. But mm -hmm. the money that I brought with me day one, that stays mine. If those are thoughts that they're having and, and you know, they want to protect that, I'm not going to fight them on it. Mm -hmm. I do think that it still does create some of that cancerous hedging and that thought of, well, you know, at least they won't get that money. That money's protected when we split. Even that thought by itself is starting to kind of prepare you for when we split. Right. And that's not helping. So I've thought a lot about prenups. And I was just saying to a friend that if I were to have a prenup, I would coach myself on what I'd be willing to give my partner a prenup in the same way that I'm asking for a prenup. Mm, and so yeah. for me, if I wasn't able to go both ways with it, to both ask for it or be asked for it without resentment, then I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair test. I, I also think that uh, when you are walking into a relationship, you know, are you willing to sacrifice and give up, you know, a, a big, big part of you, mm -hmm. you know, a big part of your identity might be rooted in the wealth that you've created. Unfortunately, that happens. Yeah. And so are you willing to invest that part of you into this person? If the answer is no, then do you really want to be their spouse? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, a lot of times I think people get married for really bad reasons. And then they try to protect all the money so that they can get, continue to go ahead and get married for those bad reasons, <laughs> you know, right, and then not right, hurt right. themselves when those bad mm -hmm. reasons turn out to be bad reasons. <laughs> so it's really unhealthy a lot of times. This is making me think of a recent situation that I was talking about with a friend. So she loves to have the house clean and she loves to clean and her partner doesn't want to clean. 
And so standard advice says, make your partner clean. He should be doing 50% of the housework because that's what a good partner does. And I was making the point to her that he probably provides so much value to the relationship in other ways. She's super happy with him. She loves to clean. So why not just decide that cleaning is her thing and that he's going to provide value in the way that he already provides value and loves to do? And I connect this back to money where I think that people often think uh, that every single person should have the same mindset on money, the same ability to generate money, and that that you have to go into a relationship with someone who has that exact mentality as you do. Mm. But I wonder how much wiggle room we're able to find when we say, listen, generating money is something I'm amazing at. Right. And my partner isn't amazing at it, but guess what? They're amazing in all these other areas. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea that that everything has to be 50-50 Mm-hmm. is a really dumb idea. And I think my experience with marriage is that it's 100-100, right? <laughs> That's how it works, is, you know, there is not an, a scenario where, it, once you start to describe a circumstance as unfair mm. in your own brain, you're creating resentment towards the other person. You're creating accusations that they are not pulling their weight. They are not creating, you know, enough whatever, cleaning the house, whatever that situation is, Mm -hmm. that kind of road of going down, this isn't fair, perpetuates itself. And you start to nitpick and find all kinds of ways that it's not fair. Where, uh, you know, kind of what I've come to, what Amy and I have come to is that fair is not a thing. Mm -hmm. It's just never going to be a thing. And, and our job is to protect ourselves and protect, protect each other from trying to make it a thing Mm -hmm. because, you know, we, if we really connect on what we're trying to accomplish as a family, as a couple, as individuals, then we can run after those passions and have that vision be something we're chasing. And in that chase, there'll be times where she's pulling me up and times where I'm pulling her up and times where I'm giving way more time and effort and times where she's doing the opposite and giving way more effort and I'm sitting on the couch. And that is the way that life works. And so if we start to make that mean something, that's on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't think that money, you know, it, in our situation and, and, you know, we have a little more of a traditional c- circumstance in that, you know, Amy stays home mm-hmm. and has stayed home really ever since we started having kids. And so I make the money and, and there is nothing in me that makes that, that I allow myself to think well, you know, she doesn't deserve or she doesn't work. So I get to do everything I want to do. And she doesn't get to do anything she wants to do because she doesn't make any money. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really destructive thought pattern that you could easily trip into. Mm-hmm. And what does that serve? Right. So I think there is a, you have to get to an awareness of what are we trying to accomplish together? Because she is pulling more than her weight in all the things that she's doing. Mm-hmm. They just don't necessarily create a paycheck, but that doesn't mean that they're not valuable. Right. So it's it's one of those little thoughts. It's not fair is one of those little thoughts that you can get pretty much all of your friends to agree with. Yes. I always say this to clients. I'm like, listen, if I were your friend, I'd for sure agree with you, but I'm not. I'm your coach. <laughs> and so these insidious little thoughts that seem innocent or at least mostly innocent can really have ripple effects in your life. The other one that I've seen 
is some version of I didn't sign up for this. And I think you see that when somebody gets into a relationship with someone with debt. They say, I didn't sign up for this. Or somebody gets into a situation where they are in a housing situation or a work situation, any kind of situation that's not exactly as they had created in their mind, which Mm. it never is. (laughs) Right. Right. And so that little thought, I didn't sign up for this, causes so much pain and what I always say to my clients is, so somebody forced you into this? Like they they kidnapped you and they and they made you <laughs> held do a this gun thing. to your head, right? Yeah, they held it right. right. And and so by going to that extreme example, people are like, oh, okay, I guess I did sign up for this. And I always right. say, when you take radical ownership of that, one, you're you're quitting arguing with the past, right. and two, that ownership and that accountability for yourself is going to have really empowering effects in your life. Totally agree. Yeah. Like Yeah, when people have the the thought I didn't sign up for this, you know, the answer is yes you did. Right. right? Always. And and I think the thing that's really fascinating is that you know, I I tell people we we need to surround ourselves with people that don't believe our story. Mm. Cuz so much of what we are doing is telling ourselves a story. Mm-hmm. That is very self-centered, very self-focused, very, you know, this isn't fair, all those kinds of statements. And then we could, like you said, we can easily tell other people. And if we surround ourselves with people who just by default believe us, mm-hmm. they don't actually help us. They're hurting us. They're creating confirmation of all the worst parts of us. Mm-hmm. And we need to be in communities where, and that's part of what the coaching world is. That's part of what advisors do mm-hmm. in the financial world is we don't believe their story. They come in and they say that, you know, the, the world is ending. Everything's terrible. We go, no, that's not true. And we can actually push against the story that they're telling themselves. And that's when they actually grow and make progress. But if you're just surrounded by a bunch of yes people that'll just agree with whatever you tell them, you've got to find different friends. <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting because I, I totally agree with you on that. And I would say that your friends might be wanting to say something, but if they get the sense that you're not open to it, mm-hmm. they're not going to say anything. That's true. Right? Yep. If you have a history sure. of being resistant, I actually, I'm working on a blog post. I haven't published it yet, but tentatively titled What Laughter Has to Do with Coaching. And what I've noticed, and I'd be super curious if you've noticed this in your sessions, is that clients who are willing to laugh at themselves and see the absurdity of what they're doing in their lives are so much more coachable than those who take a really resistant, serious stance on things. Totally. It's amazing the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If if, if they, if they're willing to not only recognize what's going on, but see the humor in it, realize the kind of absurdity of it, it becomes its own motivation to not engage in it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, oh, my gosh, that's so goofy. What am I doing? Then the next time it comes around, they can dismiss it much easier. Mm-hmm. If they can't get to that place, then they are convinced they're right when mm-hmm. they have that thought. And any mm-hmm. amount of no, you're wrong <laughs> doesn't matter. Right. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they're so locked in. What are what are other signs that you see that someone's not coachable? Um, When they. Well, one of the biggest things is when they don't believe that they are the creator of all of their own emotion. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, if they continually go back to assigning responsibility to people outside of them or circumstances, uh, and they will not break that pattern, it, you kind of just, you can bang your head against that wall for so long. And then you go, look, this is just never going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always going to be subject to all these external forces until you realize that that's not actually what's happening. Mm-hmm. And if they can't get out of their own way, it's it's really hard to continually talk to them about it. Yeah, yeah. I always say if your favorite word, if your favorite phrase is "yeah, but," <laughs> not yeah, right. a good sign. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah, that's good. So, I want to ask you more questions. That was only one question so far. Look at us go. Um, <laughs> what is the first thing that you recommend someone do if they get a raise? Well, I think the first thing that that should naturally happen if they're thinking about their finances correctly is that they don't react. Mm. Right? I mean, what happens if they're if they're thinking about it incorrectly is they've already spent it before it even hits their paycheck. Yeah. Right? They're already making plans, they're buying the next bigger car, or the next larger house or whatever the case may be in the expectation that that raise is coming and then when it happens, they feel no relief. They feel nothing but, yeah, I already spent that margin and now I'm just back to still basically trying to keep my head above water. Mm-hmm. So what what I try to get people to is where they've defined their reality and they have a really clear understanding of where their money's going and why it's going there. Mm-hmm. And then when the raise comes in, they don't immediately have a thought of, I have to spend it. Because they've already established my life is this is what makes my life content and makes me happy and and gives me what I'm really trying to accomplish. And if I have more money come in, I don't need to do more immediately. So there should be a, a reaction where there's just it's kind of neutral. Then they can start to logically and and kind of unemotionally process it to say, okay, if we have these extra resources. Now, what are some of our top priorities that we need to actually add these resources to? Could be that they need to save more. Could be that they're already saving more than adequately, and they should actually apply that towards some things that they love, some shared experiences that they want to increase. Or if all of those things are in good shape, then the raise goes to the abundance fund and they give it away. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, um, if that's not if that's not a term that you recognize, it's from the last podcast episode. I cannot tell you, James, how many people have told me that that has become their goal to I have a fund where they can give away money with that's no awesome. strings attached. That's awesome. So yeah, you're you're creating a ripple effect in the world. Oh gosh, I hope so. That'd be great. You are. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I love that though. So not immediately reacting, because um, I my mind even goes, okay, well, what are you going to do with it next, right? And my mm-hmm. mind always goes to savings, but even before savings, I love that idea of stepping back and saying, you know, this is just the next step, and let me just have it for a bit before I rush to do something with it. That's right. Uh, that's it. I mean, just having that pause takes all the emotion out of it. You know, the the thought of I need to save it is really rooted a lot of times in because I'm behind and I got to catch up. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. Or the thought of, you know, I should spend it or I should buy this or do that is because my life isn't content and I'm not happy. Right. Mm-hmm. And that'll make me happy. Now we're back into that sense of uh, wanting from scarcity. Right. Yeah. So if you're in that healthier place, there actually isn't a reaction either way. There's more of a thoughtful process behind it. I love that. Thank you. Mm hmm. 
So what is the first step that someone should take if they have no money system in place? Uh, yeah, gosh, that's a great question. I think the first step is to find a mechanism that allows you to define reality. And so for some people that is like as simple as a spreadsheet or a journal where they write down their spending and they start to categorize it. But that manual entry is really hard to sustain. There's so many mm -hmm. transactions. Every time you swipe your card for gas or groceries or whatever, to actually have to manually write that down, I just, I've never seen that actually work long-term. A lot of people say, well, I keep a budget and a spreadsheet. I said, yeah, you probably don't. <laughs> you have a spreadsheet for sure, but I bet you don't actually keep all your data in there. And they're like, yeah, you're right. I only update it every now and then. I'm like, yeah. So, um, so in my mind, the first step is to, to try out a couple of different apps. Mm -hmm. Most of them will give you a free trial. Uh, I'm actually kind of a, a big fan of Quicken. Uh, mm. Mint, mint.com is the free version. It is free because it sucks for the most part. Hey, hey, uh, hey. Sorry. sorry. I'm, trying, sorry. I'm trying to be an affiliate of mint.com. Oh, okay. Well, then never One mind. Day. Mint's fine <laughs> for free. That's great. Uh, no, I'm curious now. Why do you think it sucks? Well, it 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 is what you get what you pay for, right? So its ability to track things is limited. Uh, it's understanding of the transactions. It, a lot of times, in many cases, double counts things mm. um, because it in inside Quicken, which is the paid for version, you have a much bigger kind of understanding of how these accounts interact with each other. So if okay. money comes out of your checking account in order to pay your credit card bill, uh, it understands those movements and you can coordinate them better. A lot of times in Mint, things like that that are transfers will come out over here and it won't understand that it came from there. Right. right? So it's those kinds of goofy nuances that create a lot more manual entry. Mm -hmm. And whenever there's more manual entry, it fails mm -hmm. because, you know, humans just we're lazy. We, we don't want to actually have to like type in that I spent a dollar fifty on this, you know, whatever. Like it, it just needs to be automatic. Mm -hmm. And so any of those, you know, systems that create an automatic download, there's so many of them out there, but allowing for that to basically become self-managing because the, the critical thing, that first step is that you now have defined reality. You know what your life costs because most people, they have no idea. Right. And that is step one always. I love it. That totally was going to I was going to say mint.com, but you might have convinced me to upgrade to Quicken because you're absolutely <laughs> right. I've I have to sometimes often manually if I have a credit card payment from one account to another one and it comes out of checking, then you do have to reconcile that. So mm -hmm. um, yep. you get what you pay for, as you said. <laughs> so that's right. That's um, right. And, and as an entry point, it's fine. Yeah. And, you know, but, you know, at some point, the, the thing that I always want people to, to really pay attention to is their net worth. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people are paying attention to their cash flow. Right. And cash flow is important, but it's important in light of how your net worth is either growing or shrinking, right? That is what matters. I, I've worked with people that make four, five, six, eight hundred thousand dollars a year and their net worth isn't going up mm -hmm. because they're spending it all. Right. And they're like, I'm I'm rich. I make a ton of money. I'm like, you are poor. You are worth nothing. You have a crap load of cash flow, but you have no assets. <laughs> You've yeah. actually not accomplished anything. And so 
And meanwhile, I'll have somebody that's got, you know, a $50,000 salary and their net worth is huge because they're doing all the right things, right? So if we right. pay attention to the net worth, that's what matters. Over time, you grow your net worth by saving and paying down debt. Mm -hmm. Those are the only two options. And so if we're paying attention to that, and Quicken tracks that really, really well. You know, you can put your, your house in there, your link to your mortgage, you can put all the different moving parts, all the assets, all your investment accounts, everything all in one place to see it all. Yeah. Um, then you can see that bottom line and change over time. And you can start to recognize when you're outspending your resources because your net worth isn't growing mm -hmm. and start to yeah. save yourself from that downward spiral before it gets out of control. There's, I'm sure Quicken's version is even better, but on mm -hmm. Mint.com, they have a trends area. And so you yes. can look at a, a graph of your net worth over time, which I'm a super visual person. So that's really helpful for me. It's huge. Yeah. And you can also look at trends by category and, mm. you know, as you're spending on entertainment going up or down over time, you know, just getting an understanding of where you're losing control yeah. of what you intended to do, right? Because the, the, the key is not restricting ourselves and, and tightening it down to where we'd never do anything fun. It's saying this is adequate. I want to spend this much on entertainment and that'll, that'll buy me everything I want to enjoy for the month. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if we're starting to see that drift up, that means either one, we were wrong and it's, or we're, we're doing more than we really need to do. And we got to start ratcheting things back. Yeah. Another, I think one of my favorite exercises from the life coach school has been with money when you put your net worth into the results line of a model. Mm -hmm. So for people who aren't familiar, you have five lines of the model. So you put your net worth at the bottom and then you say, how, what actions have I taken and not taken that have generated this net worth? Mm -hmm. And what I think this does is it makes you hyper aware of the ways that you are complicit in your own <laughs> net worth, which is 100%. Yeah, that's right. But people say, oh, well, I, I couldn't get a good enough job. But what it makes you do is be radically honest and you say, I took the action of taking a job that paid this much. Mm -hmm. I yeah. went and spent money on wine instead of saving whatever it is. Right, right. Um, yeah. Have you ever done that exercise? Oh, yeah, yeah. Any big epiphanies? Well, I think that I think the biggest uh, epiphany for me is that m once you get the ball rolling, it's amazing how fast it can build. Mm -hmm. You know, so in in our world, you know, it's 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 not just I I saved this much, I you know didn't spend that much, or whatever the case may be. It's also I made the decision to start this business. I made the decision to you know buy this property or do this thing. And those decisions start being worth X on your net worth statement. Mm -hmm. And then all by themselves, they become X times three, mm -hmm. right? And you didn't have to do anything. It just happens, right? You, you allow the, the biggest thing about money is getting it into a place where you can allow it to go to work for you and just become what it'll become on its own. Mm -hmm. So many times we're fiddling with it. We're getting in its own way. We're stopping it from making progress because we're either spending it on things we don't need now or we're pulling it out of something that would create more wealth simply because we're anxious or we, you know, feel like, you know, we need to protect ourselves. Right. And so those decisions that we kind of fiddle with, we actually stop its progress. One of the biggest actions that I've taken or actually I should say inactions <laughs> <laughs> is I've just let it go 
and do yeah. its thing. And it is a miracle. Compound interest is a miracle. Yes. Well, so can you define compound interest for those who don't know what that is? Yes. Well, the simple way to, to define it is that compound interest is the fact that money makes more money all by itself. So if you start with an account that has $100 in it and then you get interest of a dollar, now you get interest on 101. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes 102 and some change. And then you get interest all on, on 102 and some change. You make interest on your interest, yep. right? And so the compound effect of wealth is an incredibly powerful force if we stay out of the way. Yeah. And so many times we stop it in its tracks. And then we blame the market or we blame the, you know, the job or we blame the whatever as that's the reason why I didn't build wealth. It's like, no, the reason why I didn't build wealth is you. Yeah. You kept screwing with it. Just let it go. So I see that with a lot of people for sure. And then the other thing that I see often is this analysis paralysis, right? Sure. So perfect example. I was just talking to to a group and it, we were so in the weeds on a savings account mm. and which savings account. And I, I think somebody else made the point and I made the point. I was like, you are talking pennies, sometimes dollars, but really, really insignificant amounts of money that you are, I mean, it's the definition of nickel and diming. <laughs> and yeah. your, your delay of that decision by trying to find the perfect fit, which by the way, we are talking like the interest rates are going up and down anyway. So what's a perfect fit today? What's the best option today? It's probably not going to be the best option tomorrow. Sure. Is just delaying this entire process. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. P- people will sit on the sidelines and convince themselves that they have to find the perfect right answer or the perfect day to make the decision. And in the meantime, everything leaves them at the station while they're still chewing on those thoughts, right? I mean, so many times, you know, I've had so many clients that are like, well, I just got to find the perfect entry point to buy stocks. I'm like, "Uh, today. The (laughs) answer to that question is always today. Because no matter what you're trying to do, you're never going to get it right. And you're going to look back 10 years later and go, how did the market double? And I didn't see it coming, right? Mm Because you never do. The stock market has quadrupled, more than quadrupled in the last 10 years. While a bunch of people were sitting on the sidelines fiddling on when should they get in or what should, you know, it's just like, just get the heck in, let it do its thing. My next question for you is, what do you say to someone who says they can't afford your services, whether that's your financial planning or your coaching? Um, I, I don't fight very hard Mm -hmm. when somebody says that. I think, uh, a lot of times when it comes to financial services, uh, there are circumstances where people really shouldn't be paying for us yet. Mm -hmm. Um, whether that's because their resources are so low and the cost as a percentage of those resources is so high that you just say, hey, we're, we're going to be actually hindering your ability to grow over time because you're going to have to pay us so much. And right now you just need to do triage work, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we always give away free triage work, right? Sure. We're all about helping people understand what they need to do next. Like what's the next right thing that would really help your situation? We'll give that away for free all day long. Nice. Um, but then to get into a relationship where we're actually mapping out the complexities of their future and understanding their tax situation and coordinating all these different pieces, that's a, that comes at a, a healthy cost. And sometimes their circumstances are such that it's like, nope, 
you know, until you get this, 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 and this done, uh, don't pay us because we're just going to tell you to go do those three, those things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so go do those things. For, we'll tell you that for free. And then yeah. once those are done, we'll actually have some work to do and we'll be worth paying. So there are circumstances where that's okay. Um, from a coaching standpoint, I think a lot of times the thought of I can't afford you is r- mostly rooted in because I'm actually not convinced there's value to it. Yes. And I don't really spend a lot of time fighting that battle. It's kind of like either you get the, you see that there's value and you want to grow or you don't and you don't and that's okay. You can be what you want to be. Yeah. I think I'm mostly on the same page as you. I Mm -hmm. did hear a really interesting podcast recently that was made two funny points. One was the coach was saying when somebody says, I'm going to go check my budget. She says, it's not in there. I can already tell you that. You didn't put it in there. It's not magically in there. Right, right, I exactly. love that answer. Right? I can like, tell you without looking because it was never in there to begin with. That's right. Yeah. Right. And so I was telling that to somebody and they were like, well, what they mean? And I was like, I know what, I know what they mean. But the right. point is, of course, you didn't set aside money for this. And of course, it's not magically there because mm-hmm. you're spending, you're probably spending the money that you have. Right. right? That's right. So. Yep. That was that was the first part. And then the second thing I thought was super interesting was this coach was saying that as a coach, her job is to show up without an agenda, as we're trained in, mm-hmm. but that if she's able to coach someone on this decision to invest in coaching, then she can help them from a very clear place where they get to decide at the end of that session whether or not they're in on coaching or not. But at least she's able to provide a little bit of value up front to let them sure. have space to process that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's, it's worth, I guess, a little bit of work on the front end to help them understand what this could buy them and what, what that growth and, and really the discomfort that would lead to that growth is worth. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a lot of times, you know, it's just rooted in whether they actually want to show up and do the work or not. They're used, a lot of times they use the cost as their scapegoat to say, I really actually don't want to be uncomfortable. A hundred percent. So I just won't show up. Yeah. So I got yeah. the I got a super interesting email from a potential person who had said that my price was too high. And in the past, I would have been like, oh, "It's not too high." And now I now I'm so cleared up about that that I'm like, "Oh, it's just just too high for her," or she thinks it's too high for her. Mm-hmm. And so we had a really interesting email exchange where she said. I was like, well, what would your ideal price be? Because I just like to engage on this topic. And she gave me a price that was lower than my price. And she said, and I said, why would that be your price? And she said, well, in case I hate it, I don't want to invest more. And I responded back and I said, I said, I'm really not trying to change your mind. I promise I just like to have interesting conversations about this. But I made the decision that when I invest in something, I decide it's the right decision. And even if I hate it or even if I have criticisms – I decide that those criticisms are worth it. And that Mm -hmm. experience of being displeased is giving me really valuable information. Yeah. And so you you and I have talked about this a lot. Like I have criticisms of the program that we went through. Sure. But I decided that every single one of those criticisms was showing me something about myself. Yeah. Yeah. Still worth it. For Mm -hmm. sure. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you this question without the background, and then I'll fill you in. Okay. I just want to hear your initial reaction. Okay. How does productivity save money? Well, I think a lot of times uh, there's a lot of resources that are wasted 
simply because we are doubling up effort. We are paying extra for, you know, the same service in multiple places, or we're paying. And, you know, in our case as a company, uh, when we hire extra staff, we're paying for people many times to do the same job multiple times if we're not careful. Mm -hmm. So definitely productivity is a resource, uh, releaser. It creates margin and space for those resources to be deployed to their highest value. And that is really important. I think most of the time people tend to apply their resources to what they feel are priorities and what they see are maybe some pinch points or some difficulties, but they're not the highest value for those resources. And so productivity actually unlocks a lot of that and gives you the opportunity to deploy those resources where their highest value is. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, so we have um, invested a lot in uh, in technology to create space for our uh, client service team to grow in their role in the client's eyes. So one of the things that we had really struggled with is that a lot of the people that were calling and talking to uh, some of our staff, in their eyes, that person was just a paperwork pusher. They were, you know, they didn't know the answers to their questions. They needed to talk to other people because they're the ones that know the answers. Meanwhile, the people that they're talking to know all the answers. And it was a deeply counterproductive process for, you know, three different people that could answer the question to be involved in the process of getting to the person where the client felt comfortable the answer was being provided, hmm. right? So what we did was we really elevated them in the client's eyes and we invested in a bunch of technology to offload all the paperwork process so that the client does not see that person anymore as just a paperwork pusher. They see them as a quarterback, as a core contact point that actually does know what they're talking about and can answer their questions at that first point of contact. And what we were finding was that it was a bigger issue to overcome that in the client's eye than it was. I mean, they knew, they always knew the answer. It's just that the client wouldn't listen to their answer because they needed to talk to me or they needed to talk to whoever. Right. Uh, and so we just needed to make a little bit of a tweak in order for the client to have a different experience on the paperwork side so that they could see that person for what they really were worth fascinating. And then it unlocked a lot of my time and a lot of other people's time who were basically being chewed up to answer questions that three people could have answered along the way, <laughs> you know? Wow. So yeah, it's been a huh. big, big win. Yeah, no kidding. No. Um, I would love for you to answer because I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting question from a business perspective and much mm -hmm. easier to answer from a business perspective of how does productivity save money? Sure. Um, right. I mean, especially if you're a freelancer, you're getting paid by the hour. Time is money. Mm -hmm. But as an individual without a business, how else do you think that productivity saves money? Uh, well, I mean, I think you create the same outcome in your own personal finances, right? The, the more that we're able to uh, be really efficient and really scalable and really repeatable, the more that we're you know, unlocking those resources that we'd otherwise be spending running around all over the place. So I, I would consider things like, um, you know, Quicken as an example, right? Yep. How does productivity of just being able to hit a button and let everything download and automatically be categorized, save 
money compared to us manually entering our budget into a spreadsheet. Right. It doesn't just save time. It actually saves money because we actually know the right answer. The budget we manually enter is always wrong because we skip things, we round things, we get close, right? Where when we actually do it the right way, when we get the real numbers, we're actually working with real data. We save more money because we're paying more attention to the to the detail. Yes, I love that. So it's, it's love- incredibly valuable. Yeah, and I think that that automation point is, is really helpful as well. Mm-hmm. I ask because it's a it's a question I'm going on a podcast <laughs> and yeah. it's one of the questions we're talking about and it's something I've been thinking about a lot so I figured I'd just put you right on the spot for it. The other thing that I was thinking about it it it's a side angle to how does productivity save money but this idea that both productivity so if you think of productivity as the category of time management, focus, concentration, getting work done mm-hmm. what I like to call the deep work state. Yep. And then you think of saving money as a whole financial process, then your ability to do both of those things requires you to understand your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. Mm. It requires you to be super self-aware to surface what's potentially going to be standing in your way of being productive or saving money. And it requires you to delay gratification. Yeah. Sure. What are your other thoughts on delaying gratification? Oh, well, I think think the biggest component to delayed gratification is future gratification, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, one of the reasons why people don't delay gratification is because they don't believe that there's gratification in the future. They're more anxious about making sure they feel good now because they're not 100% confident that whatever they're going to be able to do in the future is going to actually be valuable to them. So it kind of goes back to the idea of, you know, creating that compelling vision. Mm -hmm. If the future vision that you have is something that is really exciting and actually in many ways would create thoughts that are more gratifying, you're willing to delay. But most people just don't even have a clue what the future is. They just know they want to feel good now. I think that that's the same argument I would use with deep work and productivity as well, is if you don't have a clear vision of what you want to create with your deep work, Mm -hmm. then, of course, you're not going to want to sit down, turn off your cell phone, turn off your email notifications, right? That thing, those things are going to seem so urgent and important in the moment because you don't have a clear vision. So I love that Mm -hmm. idea of always come back to what is the clear, compelling reason after the work is completed? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much yeah. for giving me content for my next podcast episode. Hey, there you go. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Appreciate you. <laughs> my last question, and this is okay. a hybrid question of your advice for other people, but also what you do in your own life. Okay. I'm obsessed with the idea of using money to improve our lives. Mm-hmm. So in saving us time, investing in our minds. Any, any interpretation you have of investing in our lives to improve them. How do you spend money in your life to improve it? And what would you recommend for other people? Ooh, how do I spend money? So I, I definitely spend money on relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a huge priority. So I would say one of our top kind of uses of money is 
uh, to create uh, lots of space for shared experience. So we we do a lot of um, like we go to a lot of concerts. We go to uh, you know on vacations. We have the lake house that we invite other families out to, and we we love using our resources to create room for deep relationship. And I think uh, as a result of that, we have maybe fewer things than we could certainly afford. Mm -hmm. Uh, But boy, we have really, really deep experience based relationships. So that's priority one in my mind. And I think a lot of times, you know, in terms of uh, recommendations for others is make sure that that is in your top list of priorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I also, we use, we use our money to buy space for those experiences. So I do not mow my own lawn. I pay for somebody to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm looking at things where it's going to take hour, you know, an hour to do. And I'm saying, I'd rather have that hour to invest in other things. And it's worth the $70 or whatever it is to get that space back. So we definitely use resources to buy room. Uh, for that as well. Um, I think the other thing that we do uh, is we we use a lot of resources uh, to be engaged in our passions, our mm-hmm. our causes, our uh, you know the the things that we are most uh, I think churned up by and and feel most drawn to. So we do mission work. We do uh, you know we have several organizations here in town that I'm on the board of and that I'm also, you know, we give a lot of resources to. And it's not because we want a charitable contribution deduction. It's because we really want to see progress made in things that we're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And when we actually invest our resources and our time in those things, we feel like our life is valuable. We feel like we're worth something. We feel like we've actually made an impact and I think a lot of times people miss the point there. They, they're they using their resources to make their life comfortable yeah. or make their life feel like maybe they feel like they're, they matter or they're significant because of the car they drive or the house they live in or the, you know, the stuff that they have. But I've found that over time they feel pretty empty, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day. Uh, and so we're, trying to use those resources to be more intentional about what we're connecting to and giving to. And it, it is incredibly filling, you know, it's incredibly valuable to be able to look at what is happening and say, I made that possible because of the resources we were able to put in place. Um, so that's a huge thing we spend quote unquote, spend our money on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we also spend a lot of money on fun, uh, you know, we have, I think, I, I don't know if I share with you on the last podcast, we have a band room for the kids where we all like, we have, I'm literally sitting in it right now where we have yeah. guitars hanging on the wall. We've got drums and we've got amps and we've got all the stuff and we come down and we all play music together and it. it's super fun. And so, you know, finding something that everyone loves and investing money into making that possible and not necessarily kind of just limping in or having a little bit of it, but actually like going the whole way. Like I even have a stage light in this room <laughs> that when we play together, that light is, has a microphone in it. And when Wes, my son hits the drums, the light colors change. 
right? <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're playing like we're rock stars in this room in our basement, <laughs> which is super goofy, but super fun. And it was an investment of um, money to pull that off, but it wasn't that much money. And it made a huge impact on our family's ability to just engage with each other. I love it. I'm going to have a goofy fund. That's my new thing. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yes. I think people people don't feel satisfied and, and they don't feel fulfilled in life because they don't actually even know what they want. And then if they, even if they do, a lot of times they're unwilling to spend the money on what they want because either one, they, they don't know their reality. They don't know if they can afford it or not. Yeah. Or two, they feel guilty. Like I've, I've had people that have, you know, they've, all they've ever wanted in their entire life was a Corvette, for mm. example. And they're just absolutely passionate that they, they, they just love Corvettes and you go, okay, well then go buy one. Oh gosh, no, I could never do that. Everyone would think I'm rich or lavish or obnoxious. And I'm like, well, <laughs> okay. So you're not going to do what you've always loved and wanted to do your entire life because you're afraid someone might think something about you. Yeah. I mean, that is an incredibly weak argument. Go do what you love. You know, if you can afford it and your your reality can sustain it, just first of all, discover what it is you're passionate about and what you love. But then secondly, don't let what other people think about you be the reason why you don't do it. That's so pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what, James? That happens all the freaking time, all right? The time. Like it's all the time. It's so easy to say, don't do it. And yet I just, I mean, I, I have it in my life, right? Where I feel like crippled by people's opinions and I mm -hmm. see it with my clients all the time too so I think it's it's not something to be underestimated but you're absolutely right that it's the amount of joy that you have just just past that discomfort yeah is amazing yeah it, it, it is you know the, the other thing that I found is when you do it the funny thing is you assume that everyone is going to have all these thoughts about you. One thing, they don't actually think that much about you. <laughs> right. like they're thinking about themselves. But two, the fun thing is when you actually show it to people, they're inspired. Yeah. Like I've, I've brought people down to our band room and I've shown them, you know, we have Led Zeppelin posters on the wall. And we've got all these different things. And it's just this really cool room with all the guitars hanging on the, on the wall. And they don't say, why would you spend money on this? They're like, this is awesome. You know, they love mm -hmm. it. And so I think more often than not, when we do stuff that we love and we show it to people, we think they're going to judge us more than anything. They actually maybe get encouraged to go do the same thing for themselves. And that's fun. Yeah. Well, that's the same thing I feel with my career where I'm like, I, I tiptoe around some people because I don't want to I don't want to say often what I really want to say, which is I freaking love my job. Yeah, it's not always perfect, but mostly it's perfect. Yeah. I love it because I don't want to feed into this idea of unrealistic careers, but I'm like, you know what? You don't have to settle. I do believe that. And right. I do believe that there's a relationship out you out there for you that's amazing and I do believe there's a house out there for, for you that's amazing and a career. And I think I think we often do settle. So Yeah, we yeah. we get in our own way and we yeah. stop our progress. And we then blame a lot of other things for that stalled progress. And I think, you know, money is a really easy scapegoat. You know, well, we don't have it or we shouldn't spend it or, you know, other. but at the end of the day, if we really understand who we are and what we want 
and we really understand our financial reality and, and know that we can get it, then go get it. Go live that life that you're supposed to live. I mean, our tagline at WealthQuest is invest in your life. We'll do the rest. Right. Love that. And the idea is what we've seen more often than not, what we're really coaching people on is giving them the confidence to actually go invest in their life the way that they want to, because they won't do it without us. They're too afraid. Yeah. I have an exercise that I had in my group coaching program walk through, and it was super simple. I said, set a timer, and I'll put this in the show notes, but set a timer for one minute, no more. And in that minute, come up with your big vision for your finances, and then set another timer for a minute and come up with a big vision for your health, another timer and a vision for your career. And so I have Mm. about eight different categories. And we ended up doing a big brainstorming session with those ideas. But somebody was saying just the idea and the practice of sitting down to do this was so eye-opening. So Mm. if you are one of those people that James mentioned where you're like, I just don't even know what I would do with money if I had it. That's an awesome exercise to start with. Oh, yeah. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. That's great. Perfect. Um, tell me one more thing that you want to buy in the near future or invest Ooh. in. Let's see. Gosh, it's funny. I So, okay, here's one thing that I, uh, that I am super excited about buying at some point. And that mm-hmm. it, so I have I'm a Jeep guy. So I have a, a old uh, Jeep Wrangler that is, you know, on its last legs, kind of. I think all Jeeps are on their last legs. I don't understand. <laughs> like they make them to be kind of this thing that falls apart. I just, it's designed that way for some reason, but I love them anyway. And so, uh, but they just came out with this Jeep Gladiator, which is the pickup truck version of the Wrangler. Wow. And I am like instantly in love. I, I need one. I got to have one. Right. <laughs> so I'm super excited about it. But, uh, the fun thing is we've been aiming at that. We've been talking about that as a family. Like that's something that my kids are super excited about because, you know, they love the idea of having the the, the new Jeep to dri- drive around in because our old one is, you know, old. <laughs> and uh, so, but we, we were moving in that direction. And then we had this really obvious opportunity for us to invest those resources in a cause that really needed the work really need the money to do some work that we were really passionate about. And we sat down as a family and we had a conversation where we said, Hey, we all know where we really want this thing, but we're not going to get that thing because this is way more important. And everybody agreed. Yeah, this is way more important. That's great. So we used that, those dollars instead to go toward that, uh, that vision that we had. And so at some point I'm still going to get the gladiator like, <laughs> totally going to happen. But it's been really fun to hold on to that and not be, I, I don't need it. I'm not, it's not going to make me happy, mm-hmm. right? I have the total awareness that there's nothing about that, that in and of itself is going to cause me to feel anything. I, it's all the thoughts I'm going to have when I'm driving it or when I'm, when I have it. And yeah. I can delay those mm-hmm. because the thoughts I'm having right now about what we were able to accomplish are so much more valuable, right? So being able to to want something but want it in a place that's the uh, wanting from a place of abundance right the sense yeah. of i i still want it it's going to be a lot of fun i'm enjoying it the thought of it but this was more important and it needed to be a priority today and uh so yeah so that's my most that's that's the thing that i will get i'll definitely let you know when i have it i'll send you a picture 
<laughs> Great. Because I'm going to get it soon. I don't know when, but it's going to have to happen. So <laughs> drive it out to the lake house. That's right. Build, exactly. a, build a music the, room in the lake house. <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, you know, because we have kayaks out there at the lake. We've got all these things. It's like, I want to throw it in the back of the truck, drive it to the lake, you know, all the fun stuff. Uh, and so we've got all the visions for what we're going to be able to do with it. But, you know, we can wait. It's okay. I love that. You guys seem like a really freaking cool family. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I just, you have a good head on your shoulders, James. <laughs> uh, well, thanks. I, you know, I yeah. think it's, the, the, the truth is that that head on my shoulders has come from walking through life with hundreds and hundreds of families over the years and just learning. I've gleaned so much wisdom just by being connected to the life that they're leading and the pain that they're feeling and the mistakes that they made. Like, I we have 1,200 clients. I have seen a ridiculous amount of life lived out. And so I, it's definitely not something that I just had. It, it came from a lot of their experiences being on display for me to learn from. I mean, I feel the same way about my clients. I feel so honored every day that mm. I get just the amount that people share with me is so it still shocks me to be honest with you. Yeah. It's so vulnerable and so eye-opening and it really it really is such an honor to be it able is. to have these conversations with people and to be able to I think every single client who opens up to me allows me to glean information that I can then form patterns from and redistribute back out which it sounds like is exactly what you're doing as it's, well. That's it. I mean it is it is a sacred space yeah. that people let you into. And there's a part of me that feels obligated then to share the wisdom that they gifted me rather than just keeping it for myself. That feels selfish. So that's the podcast and the book and talking to people and talking to you and trying to just have conversations that get some of that wisdom out because if I just kept it for myself, that would be the most selfish thing I could do with that sacred thing that they gave me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your work yet again. You bet. We'll Happy have to, to have you back one more time or 10 more times. Who really knows? <laughs> <laughs> just let me know. Okay. Thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to the peak podcast. Your support helps this podcast grow. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is so much appreciated, and I will see you on the next episode.